following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Bills, schoolwork, meal planning, debts, shopping for kids' clothes, credit scores, house hunting, car repairs, cell phone reception, internet surface, aka Wi-Fi. These are what you might have called in the past first world problems. I had to talk to Mrs. Groff a little bit to supplement my very masculine list with some very feminine concerns there. Uh, these problems are more or less unique to those of us living in affluent societies such as our own. In other times and in other places around the world marked by poverty, war, or isolation from the global economy or whatever, problems are much more desperate, aren't they? They're much more day-to-day. -day. Uh, they're much more basic. Here's some examples. Finding drinking water just for the day. An edible food for your family's dinner that night perhaps hunting or gathering that food, uh, the day's supply of heat and electricity, where to get wearable clothes for the kids, not just having to shop for them, but even knowing where to go to even get suitable clothing or where to get the materials to make them, the availability of basic medical care. Many of us are aware of our dear friend Ruben's uh, adopted brother slash cousin who just a couple days ago died of a preventable illness, that if basic medical care had been available for him, uh, he likely would have survived. These are the kinds of pressing concerns around the world that face brothers and sisters of ours in the faith, even on a daily basis. But there is a common thread that runs through all of these things, whether they deal with first world realities or those questions and matters of daily survival. And that is uh, our response frequently to all of these things, worry, anxiety, insecurity, some level of distress. Can you tell me, honestly, that as I <laughs> listed out those very unpleasant things that we all have to deal with, at least us adults, can you tell me you don't sometimes fret over those things? The balance in the banking account, the, the monthly mortgage payment, uh, even just the future? where you're going to live or work or whatever in weeks and months to come. These matters of life and living, they cause us worry, distress, and insecurity. And these problems and the anxiety that usually comes along with them, as I've said, uh, they can be strong distractions from our various duties and our delights. This is especially the case for our spiritual lives. Uh, not only does desperation pull us away from hobbies, but it can very well pull us away from that which is most needful for us. Communion with the living God and the means that he's appointed to enjoy that communion. Who has time, we might ask ourselves, seriously, who has time to nurture a more fervent prayer life, to pursue a more disciplined Bible study plan, or to meditate on the excellent worth and wonder of the triune God, or to be more intentional in Christian service when there are bills to pay and mouths to feed? Have you ever found yourself asking a question 
along those lines. I know for those of us who are in uh, full-time ministry or some kind of Christian service for which uh, we are privileged to be able to pay our bills, it might be less of a pressing reality. But for those who are uh, carrying significant responsibilities outside of any Christian context, uh, I know, I know the pressure that weighs on you and your responsibilities. In any case, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I think you know what I'm talking about. Life's day-to-day problems and worries interrupt those ordinary rhythms of grace and therefore distract us from those means by which we meet with God. And what soon happens to your heart when you're in that vicious uh, feedback loop, that cycle, along with your time, your attention, and your other resources, then your heart soon gets bogged down in the worries and anxieties of daily life. In other words, your heart becomes distracted from your chief and highest good, that is God. Your heart becomes distracted from Him and from the things of God. What we'll see is kingdom and His righteousness and His glory. But as Christ makes plain throughout the Sermon on the Mount, God desires your and my undivided and undistracted hearts and lives, doesn't he? So, Christ addresses our daily problems and the worry that accompanies them head on in our text this evening. He doesn't leave us wondering about how to deal with this very pressing issue. Last week, we introduced a section of the sermon that focuses on the relationship of the disciples to the world, their needs in the world, as I've already said. We've read that whole section this evening uh, here at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. In verses 19 through 24, uh, to summarize, Christ called us to fix our eyes and our hearts on heavenly storehouses, to our treasure in heaven, as it were, to identify and locate Christ and God and God in Christ in heaven above and to set all of our hearts in that direction, Godward, heavenward, not to get bogged down in the things of this world. Tonight, he refers to that lesson in verses 19 through 24 to direct his disciples away from something. He's telling them to look to heaven and the storehouses of heaven and heaven's good there laid up for them. But that involves turning away from something else, namely the world's anxiety, the world's anxiety. So what Christ calls us to do in this evening's text is very simple. He says, throw off the folly of worldly anxiety and seek the wisdom of heavenly peace. It's quite simple. This is a wisdom discourse, a lot of contrasts, much like the Proverbs. And Christ is saying, throw off the folly of worldly anxiety and seek the wisdom of heavenly peace in its place. So we're going to consider this under two headings this evening. The folly of the world's anxiety in verses 25 through 30, and the wisdom of heavenly peace in verses 31 to 34. In the first place, the folly of worldly anxiety, starting at verse 25. Here, Christ, you'll notice, says, for this reason, for this very reason, I say to you, what reason? Well, it's the reason he gave in uh, verse, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up yourself, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and, or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, after meeting a couple or anticipating a couple of objections, he comes now to verse 25. For this very reason... Because of the necessary pursuit of eternal good, now I say to you, 
What does he say? Do not be worried about your life. Worried, I think, at least for my generation, it's really not a strong enough word. It's do not fret over uh, your life. Do not, uh, you know, bite down your fingernails <laughs> to the nail bed over the things of this life. Do not be anxious. Do not be gripped with anxiety and insecurity about uh, your life. Specifically speaking about your supposed life and body in the terms of the world. Look at how the world defines your life and your body. What you will eat or what you will drink, what you will put on. Jesus is confronting a very worldly attitude about what constitutes uh, life and human life. I know Mr. Long will probably appreciate this illustration. One of my favorite all-time songs is an old Genesis song called Dancing with the Moonlit Night. It's a great song. And one of the lyrics, uh, I actually sing it to myself when I'm driving around because I, I find it very apropos to many occasions. Young man says, you are what you eat, eat well. Old man says, you are what you wear, wear well. Now, we can't deny the practical wisdom of eating healthy food and wearing presentable attire. Am I right? But both the young man and the old man are dead wrong if we push their advice too far. You are much more than what you eat or what you wear. You are inestimably more than those things. And so Christ is setting that truth uh, before his disciples. In fact, that's the rationale he gives for this command. Do not be anxious about your life. Why? Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, what he's not prohibiting here, this is important to say, he's not prohibiting being responsible or taking care of the things that God puts into your stewardship or your trust. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, we read, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. A very common picture of diligence and responsibility, working hard for that uh, which you will then benefit later. And then looking past the cross, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul writes to Timothy, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because of the hypocrisy of saying, I'm a Christian, therefore I can't take care of my family. I'm too concerned about the things of God. Well, that's, that's just rank hypocrisy. God does not set his commands against one another. Christ is not prohibiting you from taking care with your household affairs, budgeting, planning, and all the like, paying bills, <laughs> managing your debt well, what he's prohibiting is being anxious about these things, fretting over them, being unduly uh, worried about them in an ungodly way, demonstrating a lack of faith in the Lord's provision. And then to this rationale, he then adds three considerations by way of illustration here in verses 26 through 30. He um, gives them the consideration of your worth, anxiety's futility, and God's providence. We'll look at these three in turn. The first consideration, your worth, in verse 26 Read it with me. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Christ is um, using a form of argument here. He's going to use it again about lilies of the field, arguing from the lesser to the greater. He puts before his disciples an illustration from nature. Look at the birds. Consider how 
you know, valueless. They are. They're, they're functionally worthless. Uh, we think they're pretty. We might love birds. I'm not saying we don't love birds, but how much more are you worth? And consider how your father takes care of these birds. Wouldn't your father take care of you? What he's doing in this first consideration is, again, paralleling the pattern we saw last week. He's meeting or anticipating an objection. This is it. He might say, don't worry about your life. Is not your life more than food and clothing? And someone might say, well, why would God Almighty in heaven above care about me? And Jesus doesn't downplay God's transcendence here in meeting this objection or anticipating it. Rather, he emphasizes that the heavenly God who watches over all things, notice, how does he refer to him at the end of verse 26? Your heavenly Father. It's emphasized here. Your heavenly Father. Recall from last week, uh, I mentioned that the theme of God himself being the father of the disciples is something Christ emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 6, with a dozen times God being referred to his father, which is about as many times as he's referred to his father in the Old Testament. So what? Well, Christ's point is this. For all those who are united to Christ in the spiritual new birth, in their regeneration, God is not just our God in heaven, separated from us by an infinite chasm of being, God, creator, and creature, but he is our heavenly father, which means he has a fatherly, tender care for his children. I am almost on a weekly basis impressed by the fathers of this congregation and your care for your children. And it reminds me uh, both of my duty as a father and what we desire for all of you young ladies to find men uh, in the future who can be such committed fathers as well. But above all, it reminds me of our God's tender, loving, fatherly care for us. And some of us don't know what it's like to have a tender, loving, earthly father. I know that's the case for uh, several of us in this congregation. But isn't it such a great encouragement that Christ says, this is why God Almighty in heaven would care about you, much more than the birds of the heavens above, because he's your heavenly father. Of course he's going to take care of you. He feeds them after all. Well, children, do you know God in heaven as your heavenly father this evening? Boys and girls in particular, I'm talking to you. Perhaps you know a close relationship with your earthly father, or maybe you don't. But do you know your heavenly father as loving and tender-hearted, caring about you personally? If not, why not? you have trouble understanding it? Do you, do you kind of recoil or turn away from the very idea of that for whatever reason? What difficulties are you having with, with identifying God drawing near to him as a father. Consider what Christ says about this father's heavenly regard for his children. If you desire to be in that family, then go to him through Christ. And in Christ's name, say, take me as your child. Our second consideration this evening is taken out of verse 27. It's very short. 
where Christ says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Not only are you more worth or worthy of the attentions of your heavenly Father than even the birds of the heavens, but anxiety, that worrisomeness, it's futile. You can't, it's not any good. It's, it's good for nothing. You know, our deceitful hearts, um, I frequently have fallen into this. We sometimes are led to think and to respond very emotionally that worry is going to do some good because it feels like we're accomplishing something. You know, you're actually expending a lot of energy when you're anxious, a lot of mental and even physical energy. But it feels like, okay, I'm taking care of something because I'm worrying about it. I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm fretting over it. But, you know, the reality is this is folly. It's just rank foolishness. It's the folly of worldly anxiety. Anxiety is good for nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. Even the fight or flight response, which gives you that adrenaline rush to get out of a bad situation or to get through a bad situation, that's not really anxiety. That's something else entirely. There's nothing productive about worldly anxiety, about fretting over the day-to-day. So that's the second point or consideration Christ gives. You're not accomplishing anything. You know, he's, he's wisely steering his disciples and you and me now away from the folly of worrying about problems just as he is also orienting your heart and mind and the disciples' hearts and minds in his context to heaven, where your solution is found in God, where your treasure should be. Life is in God. It's not in this anxiety that the world is constantly putting on us to indulge. The third consideration he gives is in verses 28 to 30, where he seems to backtrack But he's actually progressing and and meeting um, other thoughts that might be in the minds of his disciples. He says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you, and he's speaking to all of them, y'all of little faith? Again, using a lesser to greater argument seems very similar to the bird illustration, but this time he's illustrating from something about the lilies of the field. And notice he specifies what it is. Uh, Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. He's especially focusing on the growth, regular predictable, seasonal growth of these field flowers. How do lilies grow? Well, I think some of you might know how lilies grow. I'm not a gardener. I had to look this up. But I looked it up. I said, why is this significant? Well, very simply, in wintertime, when you have snow or frost and things are just cold, even if there's no snow on the ground, if there's a lily plant under the ground, there's no evidence of it at all. If it had been there before, it's by then died in the cold and it's been eaten away by birds as God provides for them or it's been blown away by the wind or destroyed some other way. So it looks like there's nothing at all there. But when the season changes, so too does that spot where that lily springs up with beauty, according to Christ, far surpassing that of King Solomon. Now, how is this point about Lily's different than the point about the birds of the air. God's providing for both. Well, the point is not only does God have regard for you because you're much more, 
you're worth much more than the birds of the air. But he's ordered his providence just so in order to care for your daily needs. That's the point of the, the lilies illustration here. And thus we can confidently pray to God, leaning upon this promise of his to uphold all things by the power of his word. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us this day what we need. And considering God's providence, we'll be reciting that in the catechism in just a couple weeks, but considering God's providence, do you pray in full confidence that God will indeed meet your needs? Not exceed your needs, but meet your needs. Do you lay hold here of the very character of God revealed in his works of providence and of redemption, but particularly his work of providence here. Do you lay hold of the very character of God revealed herein, in whom there is no shifting shadow or variation, as surely as the lilies of the field will sprout up out of the ground in springtime, so too God will... Uh, much more clothe you, you of little faith. Notice, the lilies of the field, they don't toil. They don't exhaust themselves. They don't spin out fancy garments or attire like uh, Solomon's court would have had to do. They're just beautiful. Who dresses them? God does. How? By his providence. How will he clothe you in his providential care for his children? This was the problem that Jesus identified in his disciples. And we're going to see it again and again throughout Matthew's gospel. What faith they had was very little. It was a puny, faltering, deeply imperfect faith. What faith they had in their heavenly Father was very weak. It was unsure of the reliability of God's sovereign care for his children. So what happens to them on various occasions when they're met with some distress? Well, Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem. What happens when they're on the Sea of Galilee? They grow fearful and anxious and worried. And Jesus continually says to them, do not fear. Get behind me. Let's press on. Insinuating or implying here, from our text especially, our Heavenly Father is taking care of this. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. And here he illustrates that reality from providence. For all those who rest in Christ for eternal salvation, this is what your Savior now presses home in this discourse, in this instruction. He says, you must throw off the folly of worldly anxiety, <coughs> for it demonstrates a lack of faith in your Heavenly Father's sovereign care for today. That's what he's doing here as he's making this instruction, this argument to his disciples. And now I, I do need to address this. Dr. Piper mentioned it adequately this morning, but... It's always good to remind us because it's so prevalent, even not just in the third world, but even just around here talking to people. Don't get this twisted up. Don't fall for the, the tricks and the traps of those prosperity gospel hucksters, those false teachers who deceive millions of people into believing that the way to great material wealth is simply to, quote, have enough faith. You want that car? Claim it. Name it and claim it. Call it down. If you don't have it, it's because you're not believing yet. For look here. It even says here uh, that uh, you of little faith. That's not what you should take away from this text. Not at all. What this text is saying, it is giving a rebuke. 
but not a, a, a rebuke relating to the pursuit of worldly riches. Christ has condemned that. No, this is a rebuke relating to the provision of the basic daily bread, daily necessities of life. I'll repeat myself from last week. What the Westminster Divines call a competent portion of the good things of this life. That's what it's talking about. And so we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Do not give us more lest we grow conceited, but don't give us less lest we are tempted to sin and steal. Well, in verses 25 through 30, Christ is unmasked to the folly of worldly anxiety. He's prohibited his disciples from indulging in it. And in instructing them, he likewise instructs us. He instructs us for the good of his people, his church, for each and every one of us, and for his kingdom. Throw off the folly of worldly anxiety. And to this prohibition, he gave a rationale. He gave three very illustrative, uh, easy to uh, connect to considerations. And now he'll give us a contrast. In contrast to the folly of worldly anxiety, Christ very subtly here turns in verse 31 to restate the prohibition on the folly of worldly anxiety in order to introduce the wisdom of heavenly peace. That's our second heading, the wisdom of heavenly peace, the remainder of our passage. God knows your need. That's where Christ starts. First, he restates what he said before, but notice the new uh, spin he puts on it in going into verse 32. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? It's basically the same thing he said in verse 25. But now he says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He's shifting here the frame of the same truth. The frame is going from the disciples' knowledge and experience of daily life now to their heavenly Father's knowledge, particularly of their day-to-day -day needs in their lives. Did you, did you see that? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What does Christ say God knows in verse 32? Well, he knows that like all other nations, all other peoples, all the pagans, all the Muslims and the Jews and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Shintoists and the Confucianists and the secularists and everybody else who has a heart beating in their chest and breath in their lungs, he knows that his people need daily food, drink, and clothing. Why does Christ bring this up? Well, he's anticipating this objection. If we don't worry about these things, who will? Who's going to worry about these things? And he's already corrected them in verse 27 that worry is not the same thing as responsible caretaking. But remember, that has to do with their experience, their thoughts. Now he's turning to heaven, and he assures them that their heavenly Father himself knows their needs, so they should not worry about them. It's not necessarily introducing anything new. Obviously, he knows the needs of the birds and the needs of the lilies, and he's providing for his children just as he provides for those aspects and, and uh, parts of his creation. But now Christ drives it home. Your heavenly Father knows that you need this. And so you shouldn't worry about these things. You shouldn't be anxious over them. Now, are any of you boys and girls worriers? Seriously. Do you ever... Uh, notice something wrong in your house and you start to worry about it and you start to fret over it and, and maybe even obsess a little bit over it. 
uh, you, you think, oh man, um, you, you see in the kitchen, like there's no more bananas or apples or something. You think, oh man, there's no more bananas, there's no more apples. Uh, I like eating a banana or an apple every morning for breakfast. What am I going to do tomorrow morning? You start worrying about it. But then you notice that right there on the counter next to the basket is a list. It's in your mom's handwriting. And it says, grocery list. And on that list is bananas, apples, and whatever else you're running low on. You haven't talked to your mom or dad about it. You haven't told anybody else about the shortage that you've noticed that you're worrying about. But now, you know that mom and dad know that you need bananas or whatever it is. And so, right in that moment, do you worry about it anymore? Would it make sense to worry about it? You've just been assured by this piece of evidence that your parents know what is missing in your life. And they, they have a plan even to go and get that for you for the very next day. For each and every one of us in this room, whether we're little boys and girls who worry about things like bananas and apples or grown-ups who worry about bills and debts and meal planning and budgeting or whatever, here's the point. We need to stop worrying. Why? Because God knows what we need. And he is abundantly able and to supply our every need through Christ, his son. So what do we do now? God knows our need. And Christ now gives us our orders. We have our orders in hand here in verses 33 and 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It was very tempting to break each of these statements out into separate sermons. Indeed, you could wax very eloquent about this, but to do so would be to divorce it from its immediate context, which is very important here. Christ is giving his disciples, he's giving you, he's giving me now our marching orders in light of everything else he said. Turn away from the folly, throw off the folly of worldly anxiety, and now what? Uh, seek for the wisdom of heavenly peace. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does this mean? Well, the kingdom of God in this particular context is that condition or perhaps state of life and living in which Christ, or in which through Christ alone, you enjoy God's grace and have a right to God's eternal glory. To be in the kingdom of God, to find it, to access it, in Matthew 13, we're going to see this repeated in various ways, is to enjoy that condition of life in which through Christ alone, you enjoy God's grace and have a right to God's eternal glory. You see how there's two parts there? You enjoy God's grace and God's glory. It's because this kingdom of God has two manifestations in the life of a believer, eternally speaking, here and now, before we die and go to heaven and before Christ comes again in the resurrection, we are experiencing the kingdom of God's grace in a fallen world. In the present, we experience grace, but in the future, in eternity, we will experience God's glory. Let us seek after that. We can find it in Christ alone. You must go through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you cannot enter in without his spirit uh, bringing you back to life out of spiritual deadness, enlightening your mind in the knowledge of this Christ who is himself the king and the way of the kingdom. But then the second thing we're told to seek is the righteousness of God. And it's this. The righteousness of God here is especially that righteousness of life that is ours by sanctification on the basis of union with Christ 
which is our enrollment in the kingdom of God. And I'll repeat that. This righteousness is that righteousness of life that ours by sanctification on the basis of union with Christ, which is a spiritual work of God's grace, which is our enrollment in the kingdom of God. So, having been brought before God the King through Christ his Son, we now stand justified before him. That is, we've been made righteous through union with Christ uh, and worked out through faith in our lives. Our sins are forgiven. They're pardoned. And Christ's perfect record has been given to us, pinned to our name. We are called here God's children, having been adopted into his family. And what is the desire of such a one as this? Christ is saying, seek first now God's kingdom and God's righteousness. That is to seek for the greater holiness of life that comes in the power of the Holy Spirit alone by God's grace. Don't fret, don't worry, uh, don't seek obsessively after the worldly goods that your father knows you need, even the day-to-day -day things. Don't be insecure, don't be anxious about those things, Christ says. They are distractions. Remember what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, calling for undivided, undistracted hearts. Rather, seek for the kingdom of God and his righteousness if you've got to worry about something, worry about that. Christ is a very wise teacher here. You know, and to enforce this commandment to seek for the kingdom and the righteousness of God, he adds a very persuasive reason in verse 34. Or no, at the end of verse 33, I'm sorry. And all these things, referring to food, drink, and clothing, all these things will be added to you. That is, your material needs will be added to you. How is this so? In a few ways. First... The heart that is undistracted in its devotion to God, as we've been learning in the adult Sunday school, is generally content with fewer material goods or resources than the heart that frets over the things of this world as if they are the end-all, be-all of human existence. Meet a rich unbeliever, what is, what is usually their main worry? You ask them, what are you anxious about or worried about? They say, money. Like, well, you already have plenty of money, but I need more. You meet a poor Christian and you say, what are you worried or anxious about? You say, Oh, that I would displease my God for lacking holiness. Well, you're not worried about money? Oh, no. The Lord provides for me day to day. You see what I mean there? So that's one way that this works itself out. In the second place, Christ promises to us wisdom, not just for future eternal life in the kingdom of glory, but present life in the kingdom of grace. There's much practical wisdom in following the commandments of God in Christ. That's why in the end of Matthew's gospel uh, chapter 28, verse 20, Christ will tell his disciples and send them out to do what? To uh, teach all the nations which have been brought into the church, all men, what? Everything which Christ has commanded to them for their good and the glory of God. And there really is much practical wisdom in that. To live as a Christian in this world is difficult. It's trying, but it's honest, and honesty tends to pay off. That's another application there. But thirdly, perhaps more profoundly for us, what does this verse tell us? How is this so that all things will be added to you? Well, it flows out of the very character of God. He's not stingy with his children. He heaps upon them blessings. 
They might not always be massive material blessings. There will be seasons of relative need and relative want. Paul says he's learned to be content in both. But the point here is God is not stingy. He will provide for his children. He's abundantly generous with his children. This is why Paul could write that grand statement of praise under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, far more abundantly according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I was listening to a, a sermon on prayer and was very convicted. And the preacher made the point. He said, how many of us by nature pray as if God was a stingy God? We ask for little things. He was the head of an institution and his, uh, they were uh, trying to get funds together to, to build a structure, um, a building for their school and the secretary was praying that the whole multi-million dollar project would be funded by, you know, a certain day. And, you know, it's kind of, the, the pastor was preaching. He said, I took him aside and I said, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of presuming upon the Lord. You know, we don't put fleeces out for God. You might not, might not pray that way. And the secretary looked him dead in the eye and said, well, I don't know any better. I'm going to keep on praying that way. And you know what happened? The whole thing was funded by the very date that the secretary prayed. And then it happened a second time in the experience of that same institution uh, when they had to expand again. And uh, I was flabbergasted. I'm not saying that uh, you should, but as long as you couch it in appropriate terms, insofar as it's for your glory and our good, Lord, bring this to pass, why not lay hold of God who is so generous with his people and pray for the advancement of his kingdom in our lives, in our families, in our church. Uh, pray those big things. Pray for the conversion of the hardened sinner. Pray for uh, the, 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 the saving of, of small churches that look to be on the verge of death. Pray for these big things. Not that we would grow disheartened or discouraged if God chooses to answer our prayers in other ways but that we might pray in such a way as to reflect that God indeed is great and generous with his people. Not praying selfishly, mind you, but praying uh, according to God's abundant goodness and grace. Now, what, what do you do then with those statements about the difficulty of the Christian life? 2 Corinthians 11.27, Hebrews 11.37. All of Christ's statements, even up to this point in Matthew's gospel about persecution, famine, and sword. What do you do with these things? Uh, Christians being destitute and impoverished and persecuted. Well, this promise of Christ is qualified by two overriding concerns. I've already mentioned them. That is uh, God's glory and the church's good. There are times when it will bring greater glory to God or otherwise promote our good, even sanctification and affliction, for us to go without those daily needs for a time, even to the point of death. A couple weeks ago, I preached on fasting. That's one very clear example where we have some agency there. We appoint a day of fasting for what purpose? To humble ourselves by doing what? Going without daily food and drink for a day. Um, in order to intensify our praying. That's one very basic example. But there are many times in the history of the church, I'm sure you can think of some of them, where this is the case. And you know, perhaps some of you in your own lives have experienced this kind of need, this kind of want. Uh, I have dear family members who for periods of their lives lived itinerant lifestyles, had no place to call home, really didn't know where they were going to get their next meal or their next uh, 
set of clothes when they needed it or what have you. But my brothers and sisters, these desperate trials, reflect on this, they are unique opportunities. I don't want to trivialize the difficulty of it, but they are really unique opportunities to glorify God in a way that we will never be able to do on a full stomach, never be able to do with a full bank account, that we will never be able to do in the fullness of God's immediate glory in heaven. For those of us who are bound for glory for Emmanuel's land, we will experience no want, no thirst, no hunger, no desperation. We'll have everything we need. And we will give praise to God. It will be glorious beyond our wildest imaginations. But I think it was Burroughs made this point in, in the book, didn't he? That in this present life, as we are members of the kingdom of grace, anticipating that kingdom of glory, we can return a very unique and precious praise to God that we won't be able to do again when we see him face to face. So may such times of desperation, of need, even of our daily needs, may they fan into flame a devotion to God, not a bitterness against him. But prepare now for those times. And ask God now to grant you strength when they come, that you might grow in your love for him. And, and where that devotion uh, might otherwise be threatened, that it would then grow all the more and, and that you would grow in grace and godliness through it. I, I love the point that Dr. Pipe has been making week after week as we go through Job. Job is, is growing and maturing as a believer. You see his faith developing. And when you read through the Psalter and you go from book three on the devastation of, uh, of the capture of Jerusalem by foreign armies. And then you see book four where Israel in exile puts up these songs of lament that are just such exquisite expressions of nearness to God. That's what we're after when we suffer affliction and need. Learn how to pray that prayer that we prayed this morning in our prayer of confession with sincerity and wholeness of heart. Namely, um, uh, if you should give us a choice to live in pleasure and keep our sins or to have them burnt away with trial, give us sanctified affliction. Can you pray that sincerely? Learn how to. That's what we're after, wholeness of heart and devotion to God. Don't worry about tomorrow, he says in verse 34. As he's building on here, I'll be brief. He repeats another form of that original prohibition given in verse 25, kind of gives us a good bracket of the section. But here he's appealing to a fact of wisdom about daily life. He's not, uh, not pointing out the folly of worldly anxiety here. Now he's pointing out something that's common sense why not fret over tomorrow's troubles? Well, because tomorrow's troubles have their time to be addressed tomorrow. <laughs> what, have, what do you have in front of you today? That's enough for today. The instruction Christ gives here is supremely wise. Are you overwhelmed with tasks, projects, needs, concerns, and worries? Stop. Seek God's help. Ask, what is the next best thing for me to do right now? This is not a prohibition against making plans or budgeting or schedules or anything like that. Those things are necessary. They're good for seeking after the righteousness of God in our lives. But what Christ's heavenly wisdom here is doing is it's pushing us away from worry and anxiety and to heavenly peace reserved for the children of God who've been welcomed into his family through Christ Jesus our Lord. Not telling you to be superstitious waiting on the Spirit in some kind of strange way. I'm not telling you to be slothful or careless. What Christ is telling us here is be wise. Recognize the reality of your situation. 
You got plenty to deal with today. Don't fret, don't grow anxious about tomorrow. Make your plans and then work those plans by God's grace, if he so wills. But don't fret, don't worry about tomorrow. I'll end with another illustration here. You know what an anaconda is? You know, Civil War buffs know the anaconda plan. I think that was in the Civil War. Maybe it was the War of 1812. But do you know what an anaconda actually is? It's this massive snake, terrifying thing. I don't like snakes. Massive snake that wraps around its intended prey. And then what happens if that anaconda gets a grip and then has its way on the animal or the human being it, it has? I'll put it in two words, crushing darkness. I think that's a good description of what happens when that anaconda gets a hold. That's what worldly anxiety does to us. Those who suffer from the medical condition of anxiety actually describe it this way, this crushing feeling in their chest. Some think they're having a heart attack, they're having a panic or anxiety attack. If you've ever experienced sleep paralysis, you kind of know that feeling, like there's this crushing weight on your body in the middle of the night and you can't do anything about it. Why should we indulge this kind of thing, Christ says? Why should you look forward to having that sensation, to feeding that? Why would you jump into an anaconda pit and just lie down and wait? He's saying, throw off that folly. Throw off the foolishness and the ridiculousness of worldly anxiety and seek for, embrace the wisdom of heavenly peace found in me, Christ says, in Christ alone found with God in heavenly places through Christ. And isn't this a glorious promise that he gives us? That this heavenly peace, it's not just to be sought after like uh, El Dorado, never to be found, or the fountain of youth. No, it's within grasp by God's grace. Look what he says, jumping ahead in Matthew 7, verse uh, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Seek for that kingdom. Seek for that righteousness. And you will find that peace in Christ by his appointment and grace alone. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven, much time in this text, and we bow ourselves before you, for you are merciful to us and gracious to us, and you promise that your word will not return to you void. We ask you now to accomplish all that you've purposed in it, especially that you would grant our sinfully insecure and anxious hearts a measure of security in Christ, a measure beyond that which we can imagine, even for these day-to-day -day needs. And especially, Lord, prepare us for those dark and frowning providences of which we heard this morning. Lord, we pray for peace in your church, uh, in, in this congregation and sister congregations that have difficulties of different types and, and manners. Lord, we ask that you would rend the heavens and come down and give us that spirit of consolation that we might know wisdom and peace in Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would take up our hearts into heaven with him who is seated there on our behalf interceding, that you would grant us his righteousness, both in our justification, reckoning us as righteous, but also in a righteous life that is pleasing to you and delightful to hearts that have been made new and born again after the likeness of Christ with whom we are united.
Lord, we now dedicate ourselves and consecrate ourselves this evening to your service for the week ahead. That whether we work or eat or sleep or play or study or just lie down and rest, we would do all things to your glory, trusting you to provide for our every need, even as we lay down our plans in reliance on you. Lord, sanctify all these things to your gracious ends. And we pray now that you would take this uh, meager offering which we can turn over to you and to use that in your service for the furtherance of your kingdom uh, in dedication to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.